Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 119, Follow the Money. Last time, we returned to Byzantium to begin discussing what had changed within the empire between 802 and 912 AD. I started by addressing the revival of Roman fortunes, arguing that it was the population growth combined with the decline of the caliphate which were responsible for prosperity returning to Anatolia. Today, I want to elaborate on what the economy actually looked like and in particular to answer your questions about the role of trade. Listener BM asked me to follow the money, saying he thought much of the empire's revenue came from commercial activity, while listeners AR and AD asked about trade with neighbouring states and their role in the recovery. I suspect that Constantinople's reputation as a trade emporium comes to many of us from the perspective of the Crusaders and the Venetians. In a century or two from now, Western powers will go to war to get their hands on the immense riches of Byzantium. And as much of this conflict involved trading rights, it's easy to see how this reputation spread. However, the growth in state revenues during this past century does not seem to be based on commerce. Historian Warren Treadgold has put together estimates of Byzantine budgets during the reigns of various emperors. These numbers are educated guesses about how much money the government was spending at a particular time. So for Constantine V, back in 775, the estimate is 1.9 million nomismata, or gold coins. That was at the very start of this revival. By the time of Theophilus' death in 842, the figure has jumped to 3 million. And by the 950s, so about 40 years from where we are now, it will have expanded to 3.9 million. So the state's monetary resources will have doubled in about 150 years. But only a fraction of that comes from trade. Another set of estimates tell us where the money came from. For Theophilus's budget of 3 million, about 2.9 million came from the land and hearth taxes. That is a charge on the predicted profitability of the land you own and a charge on the predicted productivity of the people living on it. Of the remaining cash the state collected, the amount coming from trade amounted to less than 400,000 gold coins. The Byzantine recovery, from the government's point of view, was all about land. 
trade was a peripheral concern. I'll give you a moment to recover from this shocking revelation, and then tell you that the figure is somewhat misleading. I've written and rewritten this episode because it's such a complicated and interwoven topic. I've decided to simplify things and handle the question of trade with a blunt for and against approach. On the one hand, trade was not remotely the force you think it is. In a medieval world, many of the assumptions you take for granted today just don't apply. And on the other, of course trade was a big deal, a permanent and vital fixture of Byzantine life. Hopefully, between the two extremes, you will see a more realistic picture begin to form. So, here is the evidence which supports the idea that the Roman Empire was a great centre of trade in 900 AD. At the most basic level, everybody traded. Farmers would produce food, sell their surplus, and use the cash to pay their taxes. This was the rhythm of life for the vast majority of the empire's citizens. Villages bought from one another, monasteries sold produce to towns, towns supplied their local garrison, island communities made deals with passing ships, and most merchants, one way or another, were drawn to Constantinople, which imported a huge array of goods. Trade was everywhere, and without it, the government wouldn't have been able to control its provinces. From this perspective, then, Constantinople emerges very much as a giant trading hub. It was far and away the biggest market for goods within the empire. The government imported all the necessities of life, grain, meat, fruit, vegetables, and everything from building supplies to metals of all kinds, linen, wood, medicine, horses, slaves, and a thousand other things were either brought in by ship or carried through the gates. One of the key documents which tells us about the capital's commercial life comes from our last emperor, Leo VI. You may remember that Leo the Wise was known for publishing works on many subjects. This document is called the Book of the Prefect, meaning the city prefect of Constantinople. The book was not written by Leo, but he certainly encouraged this collection of rules to be made available for the benefit of the government. The book is largely concerned with regulating 22 of the city's main guilds. These are just the 22 professions which the government felt were most vital to the smooth running of the capital. Many other professions existed as well. The crucial ones included textile workers, silk importers, Money changers, pork dealers, sheep sellers, spice merchants, saddlers, fishmongers, and innkeepers. The book paints a picture of a city which lives and breathes trade. And we know that this demand for goods meant that many other cities grew wealthy through their role in the supply chain. Suburbs like Chrysopolis and Sikai, the customs post at Abydos and various other harbours along the Sea of Marmara, Several Aegean islands relied on ships heading to the capital to buy their pottery, and ports along the Anatolian coast like Atalia and Trebizond became commercial centres because they imported wares from the Arab and steppe worlds and then sent them along to New Rome.
In addition to the capital, the theme armies were also significant markets for goods. The headquarters of each theme had garrisons to feed and defences to maintain, and we've talked before about warehouses and supply stations where weapons, armour and uniforms were either made or gathered. There was also a minor urban revival taking place across the empire. Not a return to city life, but just an increasing use of those cities which had survived. In commercial terms, this often took the form of an annual fair. These would grow larger and more common as prosperity returned and allowed the rural population the chance to stock up for the year. We've also seen plenty of evidence of commerce from the last few episodes of the podcast. The pretext for war between Simeon's Bulgaria and Leo VI was that Bulgar traders had been excluded from the capital. Similarly, Leo signed a treaty with the Rus to stop them from raiding. And what did they want? Trading rights. We even saw Leo create a mosque for visiting Arabs, many of whom would have been merchants. In our end-of-the-century episodes, I told you about Frankish relic hunters and Venetian slave traders, both of whom found Constantinople to be an excellent market. The Bulgars apparently sold grain to the Romans, the Rus brought wax, honey, furs, and slaves, and according to one source, certain Byzantine goods were prized in the caliphate, including gold and silverware, medicinal plants, gold-woven textiles, silk brocade, unpickable locks, lyres, marble workers, and eunuchs. Finally, we began the century with Emperor Nicephorus and his many reforms. Those that concerned trade suggested that supplying the capital was a profitable business. You may remember that he forced the big ship owners to buy some land which he'd confiscated and to take state loans. What we understand from this is that he thought they were making too much money and not paying tax on it. By forcing them to purchase property, they would become liable for the land and hearth taxes, and by forcing them to take out a loan, he'd found a novel way to extract money from their otherwise unregulated business. That Nicephorus felt the need to do this brings us to one of the key things you need to understand about Byzantine trade. As we've discussed, the land tax was the government's main source of revenue. This system developed because land cannot be hidden from an inspector. Money can be, and since there was no income tax, money made from trade was effectively invisible from the state. Only when that cash was spent on land, slaves, or animals would Constantinople get its cut. In a medieval world, an income tax was impossible to administer. The few people who had need of receipts did not hang on to them once a deal was completed, and to ask illiterate farmers to keep accounts was never going to fly. So a tax on trade could only be made when merchants entered a city or a fair. The going rate was 10% of the value of your goods. For a struggling farmer, a 10% tax might be a lot, but for the well-off, this left a lot of room to operate. 
That 10%, after all, was an official valuation, based on the prices which the assessor expected goods to go for. If the merchant could sell for a higher price, then let the good times roll. And doubtless many tried to smuggle goods in, or found a black market to exploit, or bribed the assessor. So now you begin to see why that figure of 400,000 coins seemed so low compared to the 2.9 million taken from the land. The tax on trade was also far more variable than the land and hearth taxes. At times, the government seemed uninterested in collecting it. For example, as new themes were created on the border with Armenia, the Romans saw an opportunity to cut costs. Chaldea was a relatively new command set up near Trebizond in the northeast corner of Anatolia. Check the map. The commander was to be paid a smaller salary than the neighboring commander of the Armenia Khan. But to help cover his costs, he was allowed to keep the customs dues collected within his theme. Similarly, many bishops' estates and monastic establishments were granted exemptions from trade duties. The government wanted these religious institutions to sustain themselves, and so this commercial advantage would help keep them solvent. In both cases, this was money which would not show up on the imperial balance sheet. Another fact of Byzantine life which affected commerce were the levies made on the civilian population by the army. Whenever I say that Roman troops were sent to combat raids from the caliphate, those soldiers were living off the land. Men had to be called up from their farms to rendezvous with their commander who would then march them east toward the enemy. And every day... Requisition officers would have to go out and demand food, fodder, and other supplies from nearby farms. This meant that families had to hand over produce which they'd been planning to sell. They would be reimbursed with a lighter tax bill, but the knock-on effect was to reduce commercial activity. That is the argument for there being a lot of trade. Everybody needed it, particularly the state, and you can also see how plenty of business was either obscured or simply ignored by the exchequer. In that last part, though, are the seeds for the case that trade was less important in Romania than you might think. For many Romans, trading beyond basic sustenance was impossible. In the pre-industrial world, moving goods across land was slow and expensive. Every step of the way, a man and his mule must be fed and watered and housed as they drag their goods toward a transaction. So Constantinople's demand for goods benefited those living nearby or on a shipping route, but if you lived in the mountains or on the plateau, your opportunities were limited severely limited in some cases. Trading had taken a major hit with each crisis which engulfed the empire. Justinian had kicked things off by cancelling sections of the public post. The system of way stations traversing Anatolia had been a vital lifeline to transport goods across the empire, but now only the major military route remained. 
Then the plague and the endless raids had further devastated the commercial infrastructure. For the majority of farms across the empire, the goal was to be as self-sufficient as possible. This was a logical response to harsh conditions. Each family would attempt to grow the food they needed, make their own clothes, repair their own homes. True self-reliance was probably impossible, but a village community might be able to survive with only a few items needed to be purchased each year. This attitude is at odds with modern commercial activity, where specialization is the key to turning a profit. For the Byzantines, this would have been a fool's errand. Life was too insecure. The harvest might fail. The Arabs might raid. The plague might return. It was safer to diversify and hope to survive off your own back. Even for those who traded with the capital, the world of commerce was not as enticing as you might think. Constantinople was the one place where the government could control mercantile activity, and so they regulated it to suit their own needs. And what the emperors needed on their streets was peace. You know all about this. Back in the day, the government simply handed out food and wine to keep the people happy. By 900 AD, that level of generosity wasn't possible, but many other levers could be used to make sure that ordinary people were comfortable. The Book of the Prefect reveals the heavily regulated market operating at the capital. Here are a few of the many restrictions listed. Only registered members of the guilds are allowed to work in the capital. So if you aren't a registered silversmith, then it was illegal for you to do any business inside the city walls. Most guilds were allocated specific locations for their trade. Money changers worked in the Forum of Constantine, for example. If you operated anywhere else in the city, you were liable for punishment. If your slaves were found running your stall too often, you could be punished. If you failed to report others breaking the rules, you could be punished, and you absolutely could not dabble in someone else's trade. If a money changer was found with anything other than precious stones and metals for sale, then he would be punished. Punishments might include simple floggings or shaving. It might mean being sacked from your guild or exiled from the city. And the most serious sentence that could be handed down was to have your hand cut off. If you were found editing or debasing imperial coinage in any way, then chop. The prefect set the price for bread, wine, and fish. Fish prices were agreed each morning, depending on the size of catches. Maximum profits were put in place to prevent gouging, hoarding, or the wealthy being tempted to try and horn in on the business of the guilds. Grain prices were not regulated, but the state would stockpile it for the use of the tachmata and the palace, which affected the market. Most guilds had their own representatives who could plead their case to the government, but the guilds in charge of silks and saddles had to report directly to the prefect. The export of silk was strictly prohibited because the government used it to reward the elites and send as gifts to foreign powers. 
As a result, the rules governing its production were truly Byzantine. Six different guilds controlled the industry, one to deal with the most precious silk, another who imported it only from Syria, and a third who just bought the raw material on the market. Then a guild for the workers of silk, one for the sewers, and finally one for linen merchants. Any purchase which was worth more than ten gold coins had to be declared to the prefect, and that rule is an indication of the whole philosophy behind these regulations. The market at Constantinople was there to supply the government and the population with what they needed. It was not designed to encourage the accumulation of merchant capital. In the words of one historian, the trade regulations were designed to discourage enrichment, innovation and initiative. Beyond keeping everyone fed, the government saw it as their duty to police the immoral business of turning a profit. The experience of centuries of Roman life had led to the perception that trade was a little like gambling. The house always wins, and in this case, the house is the canny merchant. He knows how to stoke people's fears, to deceive them, to arrive just when they need him most, to put his hand on the scales, all to extract more money from his customers than his products are actually worth. Clearly, not all merchants were villains, but the industry presented such ample opportunities for skullduggery that they must all be treated with suspicion. Doubtless, Christian teaching influenced this attitude, since, you know, Jesus had thrown the money changers out of the temple. This was why the prices and profits were strictly controlled. Roman law repeatedly expressed the desire to protect the poor from the powerful, and that the goal of trade should be a just price for just value, leading to a just profit. Ordinary people should be able to turn up and know what a loaf of bread costs. They shouldn't have to hear a story about terrible harvests in Bithynia and be charged double. Of course, from our perspective, the Romans misunderstood the nature of the market. Sometimes there really were terrible times in Bithynia. Official belief that products should always cost roughly the same amount flies in the face of supply and demand and inflation and so on. But the concern for consumers was admirable. Less so, perhaps, was the ideological dislike of mercantile wealth. We've discussed this particular aspect of Roman snobbery before. Like many societies across history, the Byzantines believed that gentlemen were landowners. To work yourself in some industry was beneath your dignity. Here's a quote from our Emperor Leo VI. It comes from the introduction to his Tactica, his military handbook. For there are two occupations that we consider most necessary to the stability and permanence of the nation. Agriculture, which supports and increases the soldiers, and military service, which maintains and protects the farmers. We consider these two occupations to take precedence 
over all the others. The Vasilevs is stating here the worldview of the establishment. Despite the fact that merchant activity was absolutely necessary for life, they have no formal role in his mind. They are a necessary evil to be tolerated, but not to be encouraged. There's also a story told about the Emperor Theophilus. You may remember that his wife was from a wealthy family in Paphlagonia. One day the Vasilevs was admiring a ship in the harbour and asked who it belonged to. He was told that it was his wife's. It was a grain ship and he was outraged. By continuing to trade, despite her elevation, she had made him into a merchant. He was so angry that he ordered the ship destroyed. Immediately. I can only hope that that story isn't literally true, but the point of it is to praise the emperor for his morality. Being involved in trade was an abuse of his position. He had no desire to be involved in a potentially dishonest role, and it ran contrary to both custom and law for him to do so. Yes, elite snobbery was backed up by official regulations. For example, you could not buy a state position if you had made your money in trade. We talked last week about how valuable these pensions were, and clearly merchants could become very rich and afford to buy them. But the government changed the rules so that the only way for them to enter the palace was to buy land and raise sons on it until they could be seen as respectable. Similarly, those in state service were forbidden from trading over a certain amount or purchasing private property without permission during their time in office. To be fair, the Byzantines did allow loans and trade partnerships to be formed, but rates of interest on commercial activity were set very high. It was clearly a better investment to buy a court title. In all this official frowning, though, there is clearly a streak of hypocrisy. Most merchants were not wealthy by the standards of the elite, or they would have joined them. Many were just middlemen taking goods from a supplier to a market. The suppliers in Byzantium were most likely to be the elite landowners. The restrictions I've described were all enforced at the capital, but beyond the walls, who knows how often they were adhered to. Out on the larger states of Anatolia, the rich ignored the rules and cut deals with merchants privately. Or at least we assume so. Someone must have been doing it because many items which were prohibited from export still found their way into foreign hands. At the capital, the following goods were banned from sale. Weapons, armor, Greek fire, fine clothing, embroideries, silk, gold work meant for the palace, certain books, any products from the imperial mines, and gold and silver coins. I described earlier how silk and fine garments were said to be prized in the caliphate, so probably the wealthy had workshops of their own or passed items on quietly to merchants in the borderlands. The last item on the list is worth examining too. It was technically illegal to export Roman coins. So if you bought something from a foreign merchant, you could be accused of breaking the law. 
Now, presumably, in most cases, it was assumed that the merchant would spend the coins in the empire. But coinage shows up outside Romania all the time, so clearly trade was going on regardless. The fact that the government banned the export of coins reveals a fascinating difference of thought from our own. In the 21st century, we think of money as both a medium of exchange and a means of enrichment. Whole industries are dedicated to investing and expanding their holdings. The Byzantine government viewed their most valuable coins quite differently. For them, it was simply a means of gathering tax to pay their soldiers and officials. And in fact, they actively tried to discourage its use for other purposes. Not only by banning its export, but also by taking it away from the public whenever possible. If a farmer owed two and a half gold coins in tax, the state would ask him to pay three. They would then give him change in bronze. Gold and silver were precious. They belonged safe in the treasury. They were not to be passed around the provinces where they might be lost, buried, or stolen. Back at the capital, one of the tasks assigned to the money changers was that they were to swap out old coins for new ones, especially if they found those minted by usurpers. Then on various occasions, the state would come to them and force them to sell their precious metal to the state in exchange for bronze. The concept that you might invest in the hopes of gaining profit later was not something the government was interested in. They saw the economy as a zero-sum game, a means of getting people to work for them, not for growing the amount of money in the system. So that's why Constantinople was not the trading paradise that some might have imagined it to be. Clearly, Commerce was an essential part of Byzantine life, and as much as it stunted and controlled trade, Constantinople was a big market that created a way of life for the port cities en route. For all their snobbery, the elites were aware that profits could be had, and those with big estates could afford to take a few risks. It's interesting to note, too, that despite Christian misgivings about trade, hagiography does not provide a blanket condemnation of the profession. Lazy or dishonest merchants are criticised, but the general practice is not. Like most societies, the Romans had to find a balance between freedom of exchange and the concerns of justice. Fundamentally, though, the lack of social benefits to merchant activity was clearly a drag on the commercial potential of the empire. And this opened the door to the Venetians and eventually other Italians to play the role of insiders, able to scoop up profits which the Romans disdained without seeming like a foreign enemy. Attitudes will change over time, and I will keep you fully informed when they do. Next time, we'll explore that elite hypocrisy a little further. The restrictions imposed on them were not only there to protect the poor. They were designed to stop the wealthy from becoming too powerful. The benefits of the Byzantine revival were unevenly distributed. The rich were getting richer, and the government was concerned.